Hey there, and welcome back to episode 85 of the Food Biz Whiz podcast. In today's show, I am welcoming my friend David Brown back to our podcast. So David is a brand and retail consultant for the natural, organic, and specialty food industry. For more than a decade, David has been the principal writer and analyst of the State of the Specialty Food Industry Report Series, produced by the Specialty Food Association. So you might remember that he joined us for episode number 20 of the Food Biz Whiz podcast, where we chatted all about the State of the Industry Report for 2019. In today's show, we are catching up and we're going to talk about all the things that went down in 2020. We're going to discuss which, you know, retail and e-commerce trends will likely stick around as we move into later 2021 and towards 2022, and how David's work as a data analyst is crucial for emerging brands as you make business decisions. Let's get right to it. You're listening to Food Biz Whiz the weekly podcast for everyone in the packaged food industry. Join your host, Ali Ball, to learn how to launch, grow, and scale your business. You'll hear real-life examples from her time as a professional grocery buyer, interviews with CPG experts, and listen in on actual client coaching sessions. Let's get going. This episode is supported by Canva, one of my favorite online tools for creating beautiful on-brand sell sheets, promotional materials, social media posts, website graphics, and more. I use Canva Pro every single day in my business, and I love that I can save my brand colors, my fonts, and my templates on their platform. It takes the guesswork out of designing graphics, and it saves so much time as my brand elements are at my fingertips. Since their launch in 2013, Canva has helped more than 15 million users and claim to have a design made on their platform every 30 seconds. That's nuts. Try out Canva today by visiting the link in my profile and start creating beautiful on-brand designs in minutes. Hi there, David. Thank you so much for coming back on the Food Biz Whiz podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Okay, my whizzes. Like I said in the intro, you might know David from our past podcast episode, which I am going to link in the show notes. But if you haven't had a chance to hear that one yet, let me give you the brief background on David. So I'm going to say it is it is really hard for me to keep it short, given that he has <laughs> more than 28 years of industry experience. But let me let me see what I can do. So David got started in our industry in the early 90s, the 1990s at Whole Foods Market and has spent the past three decades as a buyer, manager, and analyst. So he's also been the merchandising director of a health and wellness products e-tailer, which later sold to Vitacost. He was a president, a vice president, excuse me, at Spins, the data company that I love so much, and a senior analyst at Mintel, another industry leader for data. So independently, David assists emerging premium brands and retailers with their sales data analytics and has led the charge for the state of the industry report series series from the Specialty Food Association for over a decade. It's a long time. So all that being said, David knows what's going on in our industry and loves to share his findings. Historically, he's also presented this information at big conferences like Expo West and Fancy Food. And I am so grateful that he is taking the time to join us on the podcast again this week. So David, like I said, welcome. I'm so excited for this. Are you ready to jump right in? I am so ready. Okay. So first, can we talk about 
the Specialty Food Association and their annual report. So I want to know for my listeners who didn't listen to podcast episode number 20, what the heck is it and where are you in this in this year's writing process? Yeah, sure. So the Specialty Food Association actually started in 1952. They're based in New York. Uh, so they're coming up on 70 years uh, of being around and supporting the wow. entire supply chain for specialty food. And really, if you go to the fancy food shows these days, if you've been prior to COVID, uh, you'd see in San Francisco and New York that... Um, you know, there are just literally thousands of producers. Uh, you know, there are uh, international producers. There are a lot of local and regional producers, small mom and pops, as well as well-established and even sort of legacy brands in the uh, specialty industry. So uh, they're function is to obviously help their membership grow the grow the industry as a, as a whole and what I've loved especially in the last year watching with covid they've done a, a ton of educational uh, webinars mm-hmm. uh, interviewing retail buyers inter- interviewing uh, other uh, others in the uh, supply chain to basically assist us as we navigate through these really uh, tough times and part of that process for them is coming to people like me and prior uh, to this year, also working with Mintel to help size the specialty food industry, knowing that spins data is out there and other sources of data are out there to size how big it is in brick and mortar retail, how big it is in e-com, how food service is doing versus all of that. And also who the consumer is, the specialty food consumer who we just acronym as SFCs. Uh, Throughout these reports, we talk about SFCs all the time about what their buying habits are, where they buy, how frequently uh, are they sort of light users of specialty foods across just a few categories or are they buying, you know, 20 plus categories on a regular basis. So there's a lot of analytics that goes into these reports every year. It takes me literally about three or four months to write and research these reports and, um, we present some of the best findings at, at each of the fancy food shows, or we've done them virtually in the last uh, last year. And so there's just a lot to chew on. And right now, we are in the early phase. I, we're pretty close to finishing the first draft of the 2021 report, which is only going to be focusing on the market. We're going to talk about the consumer later this year. But uh, mm. right now, we're just gathering all of our sales data, 63 food and beverage categories from spins. Wow. Uh, estimating, including Whole Foods and Trader Joe's, estimating, including other specialty retailers that Spins doesn't track. Uh, we're grabbing uh, any kind of secondary research to understand what's going on in, in the online sector and in food service, which we know has really struggled, and putting that all together into a coalesced, you know, easy to digest report, which is almost impossible, but we try to do it. We've been doing it for so long. We were trying to make it easy, uh, easy on the reader, you know? Yeah. And David, I, I will say, you know, reading past reports, I think I, I, I'm going to say you succeed at that. You know, it is hard to look at that data and one, like know what the heck you're looking at and how to yeah. use it, but two, um, understand, yeah, just how to digest it. And I think you guys do an excellent job of making it, almost fun to read. I mean, I'm a little bit of a data nerd, but like, I really like reading this report. Oh, well, I, I appreciate that. I, you know, I, we operate sort of in a vacuum from time to time, but when I go to the fancy food shows in the past, it was always great to meet uh, and speak with uh, uh, manufacturers who had read the report or seen the report. And 
I try to do it from the perspective of if you don't even want to read this 160 page <laughs> uh, report from cover to cover and just go right into your category and look at what the forecast is and what the key metrics are. I want I want you to be able to do that without having to read a you know a, a ton of preamble about what the market is and how we define it and this and that. So there's there is some repetition in the explanations with the intention that you're going to go into this report and look at just a few pages here and then six months later, look at a few pages there, that sort of thing. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think David, you and I originally met over your research for this report back in in 2019. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I was I was definitely eager to talk with you about the industry because part of the report that I didn't mention yet is that we interview uh, about fifteen or so members of the supply chain, and that includes uh, you know vice presidents at key distributors, that includes brokerage owners, that includes uh, manufacturers and retailers. And we asked them about the state of the industry and uh, we, have, we haven't conducted this year's interviews yet, but, but I remember mm-hmm. a few years ago, I spoke with you and I, I spoke with Sam at Byright and uh, Richard at uh, Canyon Market. And yeah. it was just, just phenomenal information that we then coalesce and put into the report so that, uh, again, the readership can better understand real feedback from real producers, what they've struggled with, how they've succeeded and, and guidance that they would give to everyone else who's reading the report. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like the report is really targeted at those emerging food and beverage brands. Is that is, is that correct? I, w- I would say so. Um, and, and that's primarily also because the, while the report is long, it's it's actually very affordable through the Specialty Food Association website. If you're a member, you get a discount. I think it's 50% off. And I want to say that it's around $1,000 to $1,500 yeah. for the report. Yeah, that's what and, I remember as well. Yeah. Yep. And you, you, can, you can readily, as a small producer, afford something like that to see how big your category is, see how it's gone uh, the last three years, three calendar years. In, in, in 35 categories, we're actually forecasting the next five years, as well as looking at the past five years. So you've got 10 years of year-over-year data for a key category like frozen entrees or frozen desserts or bread. You know, So the most relevant categories, 35 of the 63, we do that forecast each year. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but as an emerging brand, I, I know how it, important it is to have data as you're building your business and pitching to new accounts and you know, not that this needs to be a plug or like a commercial for this report, but you know, where else are you going to get that data at that price right. point? Right, right, yeah. exactly. You're not. You're not. That, you're that's not. definitely the case. <laughs> yeah. So, give me some stats here. Um, let's talk about the size of the the specialty food and beverage market and like how it's how's it going. Yeah. Well, you know, in the last year, we have obviously some unprecedented times. <laughs> right. uh, you know, I think back to when we wrote the report and published the report last year, that at the time, the specialty industry was about $160 billion in sales. And probably close to 75% of those sales, or $120 billion, were coming from brick-and-mortar retail. Wow. And, then, and then a much smaller percentage, about 3.5%, was coming from uh, online sales of specialty products. And then food service made up the difference, uh, about 22% of the market and about $35 billion in sales. And at the time we were doing this report, one of the things that I've seen in the last decade is very, very visually clear when you look at the forecast for the market over the last five years and looking ahead, that 
what when we were seeing double digit year over year growth in the specialty industry, even just as recently as like 2014, uh, it was very common to see 10% growth. And that was, you know, easily three times as fast wow. as, as the whole food market, uh, including yep. conventional products. But we've really seen it slow down rapidly in the last five years leading up to COVID. And that's that's obviously partly because the the, the market has matured. Specialty food, uh, that industry is, has matured quite a bit. And um, it's not it's not any kind of criticism on the market. It's just a logical progression. It's not because you know there haven't been enough new cool innovations to grow the category or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, at, coming into COVID, we were looking at maybe three or four percent annual growth at that point, and uh, you know, then March came a year yep. ago, and yep. <laughs> everything changed. <laughs> yep. And so, David, just just to clarify for my my listeners, when you say you know we were looking at that three to four percent annual growth, um, what segment of the food industry do you mean by that? Well, we're talking about specialty food, right. uh, these these gourmet foods that, that are typically very uh, sort of high end and unique in their category. A lot of times we're including natural and organic products as well. And that's one of the reasons we go to spins as opposed to going to Nielsen or IRI directly uh, who sell you know data for all products. So we're looking at those types of products. Overall, that represents about 20 percent of the entire food industry. So when we're talking about, you know, brick and mortar retail uh, specialty goods being about 120 billion in sales, that's about 20, roughly 20% of the entire food industry at this point. Gotcha. That makes sense. And so like for a listener who's like, oh, shoot, Allie, like you're, or shoot, David, like you're telling me that (laughs) my, you know, my little segment here of the industry is only growing three to four percent annually historically like pre-covid yes yes um what would you say to that like is is that a sign like don't start your food business or or what does that mean not at all i mean it really it it means it means many things i mean i think i would caveat it right off the bat by saying keep in mind the the entire food retail grocery food retail market is lucky to grow one percent and that's only because of food inflation that's not even because of actual Mm -hmm. growth if you're looking at unit volume it would be a probably a slightly declining category and so to see positivity in the specialty market which now makes up about 20 percent of the entire food market is is clearly a plus if you're going to enter the food space and you're going to be creating a specialty good you need to recognize that you're in a growth sector that is otherwise a very flat sector gotcha. and and then when you drill down much further it's like well what category are you going to compete in if you're going to compete in yogurt and offer a greek style yogurt well you need to know that is a very mature specialty category it's <laughs> it's it's it's, it's right, big like- <laughs> it's big but it is not a growth area and right. If, and are, it, what are you going to do? Like take on Chobani? Like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then you look at other categories like uh, chocolate and other, and other confectionery actually grew quite well in the last few years pre-COVID. And so while that is also a mammoth category, we know we walk the food, the fancy food show, it's just loaded with uh, yeah. candy, chocolate and candy, but that category is still seeing a lot of growth. And so you know, that's one of the things that I would say, if you're an investor, or even if you're just a small producer, you need to know your category well enough to know where is it in the maturity sort of spectrum? Is it already mm-hmm. sort of run its course? And it's and it's going to require something really exotic and unorthodox that's going to stand out? Or is it in a, a trajectory where it's not yet peaked? And you're, right. you, you could still innovate in a more conventional way and still probably see some good growth. 
Right. And of course, that's like the million dollar question, right? Like, right. Right. <laughs> what should I launch? And, <laughs> you know, tell me, David, like what literally like what should I launch? Right. Like that's that, that's a tough one. Um, it and is. that's where data comes in, of course. It does. It does. In fact, yeah. I've 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 listened to a couple of podcasts recently um, where I've uh, been really awed and inspired by some companies who have begun their business with just that question in mind. They know they want to create something that is specialty, that is all natural or organic. They know they want to have cause marketing and and help charitable causes that they believe in. They just don't know what product they want to make. And they they go into this food market with that mentality. And that is, you know, that is something that has happened in the last five years, I would say. I think prior to that, we had a lot more producers that were like, look, I make a, I make a condiment or a sauce, and this is what my family has made for all these years, and this is what I'm doing. And, yes, and, then, yes. and then you had this transition of like tech, tech millionaires who are now entering the food space who are more tactical, like, no, I'm going to make an inno- innovation that's going to disrupt. It's going to be this big, and let me figure out what it is. They're not necessarily passionate about a specific category. And I in a good way, I'm seeing some new producers that are coming out that are saying the same sort of thing. What can I take from those tech uh, yeah. entrepreneurs and say, let, let me think strategically about what category matters right now and do this a little bit more wisely. Yes. I literally had a phone call with a a pretty established brand this morning who is not in the food industry. You know, they're a, a different brand and they're like, we want to get into the food industry and we don't know which category to launch with? Like, how do we, how do we get that information? And I was like, well, first you call my friend, David, (laughs) and you look at the data and, and, you know, you make a strategic plan to ensure that you are, you know, how should I say it? Like, um, that you have the best chance at being uh, a profitable, sustainable business. Right, right. And uh, there is just so much crowding at this point. And there are so many companies that are coming up that are backed by other investors or larger uh, larger companies. And I, I, I do sympathize or empathize with some of the small producers that are coming out uh, in you know even plant-based categories. Let's talk about that. That's mm-hmm. a very rapidly growing sector. We know yeah. that. And yet, you know, we were selling soy milk at Whole Foods in 1992 when I started working there. So, you know, this, this is, this is not a new category by any means, but there's so much cool innovation going on there, but a lot of people with already a lot of money, a lot of good backing and a lot of intelligence there. So it's going to be, it's going to take, it's going to take more hard work than I think than ever. Uh, And that, and that's only magnified by COVID. It's going to take more work than ever for small producers to get clear on what they're going to create and how it's going to succeed. It's it's probably tougher than ever. Yeah, I feel like the the consumer is more savvy at this point as well. And you can't, it's it's so much harder to have like a half baked brand at this point. Yeah. Um, You know, it just, we saw that, you know, when I was at Byright, like, I call it the glory days, but like 2008, we were, you know, in a recession, people were cooking at home and indulging in, in um, retail purchases rather than in restaurants and things like that. And we just saw this skyrocket of specialty food. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to admit, like a lot of the brands were, were just okay, right? Like the, the products were delicious. Like, of course people were buying them for the taste, but like the, as a, as a whole, like the, the branding wasn't very sophisticated. The marketing mm-hmm. wasn't very sophisticated and it still worked because the consumer 
also wasn't sophisticated. Good point. Very yeah, good point. But I, I think that we've really shifted and gosh, it's been what, 13 years since that. So mm, yeah. 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 And, and we haven't really even touched on COVID yet. One of the things I was going to mention that we did last year that I was so grateful for was that the Specialty Food Association said, hey, you know what, we normally publish this market data for the calendar years, uh, right around the time of the fancy food show, which uh, was in early January of uh, 2020. And what we did was we put everything on hold as soon as COVID took place. And we Mm -hmm. finished publishing the report in June, so that we could buy another subset of data from spins for the first first quarter of 2020 so that mm. we could see what happened and what we saw Gosh. was uh, electrifying i mean i i can't even begin to describe um the entire specialty food market in the first quarter of 2020 grew uh grew 40% and wow. we're talking about a category, a market that like i said it was doing 3 or 4% annually and all of a sudden in one year over year period in a quarter it grew 40% and the takeaway was so fascinating to me. And I, I'd be very curious if you have any reaction to this too, but yeah, we, started tell me. At, we started looking at all the categories. We bought uh, like 35 categories and some no brainers. Baking mixes was up 80%. Uh, yeah. on, entrees and mixes, the shelf stable variety, including mac and cheese up 120%. Yep. Then you saw these crazy old legacy categories, relatively speaking, like soup that maybe don't really appeal to young consumers, <laughs> but it was up 125%. Yep. You know? Yep. And pastas and sauces. I mean, I've eaten more pasta this year than I've eaten <laughs> in like a decade combined, you know? And, yeah. uh, and so that's, that's not a surprise. Um, but what surprised me was some of the sweet categories like yeah. uh, chocolate and other confectionery and nuts and trail mixes and, um, and wellness bars even mm-hmm. also did, they grew, but they did not grow at the same rate. And, you know, wellness bars, I can kind of understand because we also saw something happening with convenience foods as office workers weren't pulling into the stores to get their lunches on the go and grab functional drinks, fresh drinks, uh, yogurt and kefir cups, wellness bars, those all took a hit because of that. And and so that makes sense. But just the the sweet savory divide was the point that I was going to ask you about, you know, that to see sweet foods not perform as well in that early stage, to me, it's conclusive that consumers were getting more realistic, like, oh my God, I get, I got to get to the store and get what I need for my family. And some of these impulse sweets are just going to have to wait. That's exactly what I was going to say. I think it, it may have to do with the merchandising in store, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's like, we get into, you know, especially when COVID like first went down, we had all this you know, still do, but like this, the, these messages around get in and get out, like yes. make it happen fast. Yes. Um, and, you know, certainly we'll talk more about e-commerce and like click and collect and things like that in a moment. But I, I think a lot of it was like, get in the store, fill your basket as quickly as possible, you know, with all of your pantry staples and, don't you dare browse in the like <laughs> in the like um at the point of sale because nobody wants to get covid right no so you're I think absolutely it's right i think it's something with that right like the in the impulse buys didn't happen like the add-ons didn't happen right and, um but i don't know david like i think there's obviously like the data doesn't show this but like for me like in our household i was like we're not spending our money on concerts, on travel, on restaurants. Like mm-hmm. we aren't, we aren't spending in the same way that we used to, like 
all of my <laughs> indulgences in normal life have been taken away from me. Like you better bet I'm going to buy the $12 chocolate bar. Cause it's like the one indulgence I have in my day. Yes. And that, that is exactly what we've seen in the specialty industry in the last year that we know that already from our consumer data, we know that the specialty food consumer is generally more ha- affluent than the average consumer mm-hmm. and has more disposable income. And, and obviously this year definitely had cut back on vacations and other things. So they had more disposable income that they could splurge. And, and, and yet, you know, in general, I think we have seen some trading down in some of these categories. The data is not final yet, but what I'm already starting to see is um, I think there's been some trade down in some of these categories that are more commodity where, mm-hmm. okay, I'm not going to buy this uh, this really high-end cheese this time. I'm going to buy a block of, you know, sharp cheddar that is um, hormone-free, but it is not, you know, a yep. local producer, you know, something yep. like that. And then also store brands, you know, I, there's more yeah. and more data that says, you know, yes, we've just come through a recession and Maybe technically we're easing out of it and the stock market has continued to do well, but there's definitely been some trade down in the categories. And that to me is more the lighter consumer of specialty foods that Mm -hmm. these are people that were already just sort of casually entered the entering the space. So they've, they've scaled back and in their numbers, they actually impacted the data, but the core consumers like you and me, we're looking at things like, Oh, I'm hell. I'm I'm normally buying regular (laughs) pasta. Well, I'm going to buy fresh pasta in the refrigerator. And it's like five times the price, but yes. I, I can afford that. Yeah. Right. So. Exactly. I also wonder if there isn't something about the that like experience of that like light specialty shopper spending, yeah. like spending so much more money on groceries than they historically have, even yes. if their overall budget hasn't like, you know, their like food budget has not increased. Um, yep. They're just like the frequency of their trips and go and literally like the grocery budget, as opposed to like the dining budget as a whole has increased. And so they're like, Oh my God, I'm buying this cheese every freaking week. Like I should really cut back. Even if like when you're actually looking at the, the spending, it doesn't, you know, it's not even up from 2019. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I remember from our consumer data in prior years that when we ask about food at home expenditures mm-hmm. versus food away from yeah. home expenditures, the the perhaps irony that you might ha- see at first, but it makes sense, is that the lighter, especially food consumer, actually spends a lot of money uh, on restaurant food. Yes, exactly. And so to your point, when they're starting to spend so much more on groceries, they might think, well, what the heck's going on? I can't do this. But it's like, hey, look at your wallet, buddy. You're used to eating out a lot more that you than you are this year. So yes. just do the, do the math and you're you're still, you know, basically possibly down because, you know, yeah. eating out eating out's a lot more expensive. So that was exactly where I was going with that. Thank you for yeah. <laughs> thanks for tying that together. Um, sure. and I, I think there, yeah, I think there's something something there. I um, do too. I do too. Okay. So so COVID hit, you just told us this crazy stat that in you know, it wasn't even, was it Q1 as a whole it was that you really were measuring? Q1. It, was it was Q1. Like, it was really it was like particularly March. It was particularly March. March. Yeah. yeah. 40, so, 42% up in March. Yep. God. I mean, we saw that in, we saw that in retail ready too. And I think some of it was that um, there were so many disruptions around, along the supply chain that yeah. consumers were willing to give new brands a try um, if they're like, you know, normal household pasta brand was out of stock, they were willing to reach for the, 
you know, the, the other brand, um, which was kind of cool. Bingo. It was very, very cool. And I did it myself. I would go in and desperately looking for beans, grains, rice, you know, the commodities and saying, okay, well, I can't find that. I'm going to buy the Lotus foods version, which is a lot more expensive, but that's what's on the shelf today. And, you know, there's a blessing there because I do think that while it would have been, you know, sort of sticker shock for some consumers, it also exposed them to things, new things. And hopefully some of that, as they say, some of these habits hopefully will stick. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I just shared in a recent podcast that that literally happened to me with toilet paper, which seems so freaking cliche. <laughs> no. But like, I'm like, now we use a bamboo. Yes, brand. exactly. <laughs> me like, too. Me too. And I'm like, you know, we were seventh generation household, like through and through. And yeah. sure enough, like couldn't get it. And now here we are one year later. And like, I still have this bamboo brand. In, exactly. You know, I have a very bathroom. similar, very similar story at Costco about that kind of thing. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, David, I'm going to have us take a quick little break. And mm-hmm. when we get back, I want to talk more about what happened in the rest of 2020. So hang tight. Food Biz Wiz is supported by Canva, my favorite tool for designing on-brand graphics for my business. I love it for my web graphics, my podcast graphics, and for my social media posts. And my clients love it for their sell sheets, trade show materials, shelf talkers, and promo kits. You are going to be blown away by how easy it is to use Canva, and I can't wait to see what you design. Try it out today by visiting the Canva link in my show notes and get to designing beautiful graphics within minutes. Okay, David, we are back. We know what happened in Q1. Can you give us the lay of the land for the rest the rest of 2020 as much as you <laughs> understand it at this point? Yeah, yeah. So what one of the things that we definitely picked up on because even after the report published in June, we continued to follow the industry closely. And in fact, I've kept a document of everything that relates to coronavirus and grocery and e-com and, and, you know, public results from Costco and Kroger and all these guys in a document on my uh, desktop. I've been keeping it updated since last, since last March. And oh my God, so, people, people will pay for that, David. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, because I just wanted to under, better understand, you know, some of the behavioral things that are coming out from Susie and some of the uh, mm-hmm. sales insights. One of the things that I was going to mention also that is not meant to be, you know, let's all give each other a, a, a hug here for a moment, but it, but it is practical that I, I'm sure you saw this too, that when COVID hit March, April, May on LinkedIn, there was a flurry of activity mm. of producers helping producers, supply chain giving tips to other supply chain members. Yep. There's yep. so much collaboration. It yep. was a it was the most fun I've ever had on LinkedIn. And I spent a lot of time <laughs> there anyway. And um and so I was so happy to see that, but it was really insightful to see what where the challenges were and where the where the successes were. And we know from our forecast as we made the forecast, we knew even in May when we were formulating it, that there was going to be a fall surge with COVID and sure enough, there was. And so a lot of the lockdown continued through the fall and we knew that that would mean that the grocery and specialty food industry would benefit in the long run. So uh, we, you know, we estimated, I think something along the lines of 14% growth for 2020 before, Mm -hmm. um, you know, before the end of the year. And I know Mm -hmm. now from looking at some of the raw data that we're seeing that probably, I think the spins data shows that the 20, the 2020 was actually up closer to 20% for special. So the year ended on a very, very high note because of the continued lockdown. Gosh, I feel so grateful that we're, we're in this segment of the industry. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's there's so much upside right now that includes some of the things we've talked about, that there's sporadic uh, new customers entering the space, buying whatever category of specialty item that for the first time, because they just needed to, to find something in that category. And then they're finding that they're at home and they're bored with their cooking and, and, and their meal planning yeah. and they want something more exotic. And so they start adding that into the mix. And so it, it is still a very positive time, even... You know, and even as I say that, I think we can all agree there was so many bandwidth issues with the supply chain that, you know, even though we grew so well, 20% or whatever it may be at the end, um, there there was so many other missed opportunities because we just couldn't keep up with all the right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Like, it, it, it is interesting to think about that, David, like... What could have been <laughs> if we we had the supply chain in in place? And you know, I don't I don't know. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, I I was uh, following some of the sales data for one of my clients through Kahee's portal, and Kahee is good because their interface allows you to see the fill rates week to week or, mm. or whatever time period you enter. And so, you know, it was not uncommon during March, April to see fill rates uh, at the distributor level of 30%. So it was so frustrating to see that, you know, if you had a a thousand cases ordered, only 300 cases were shipping because of those bandwidth issues. And because because your product was being, you know, pushed off the truck in favor of something that was deemed more necessary, which I get, I get that. Yeah. But following those fill rates, they rapidly improved. I have to give, you know, the the distributors some credit there, even though there's a lot of, you know, griping about the working with the distributors, you know, that the fill rates did improve more rapidly than you might imagine. And so, you know, it really helped the industry along. Well, and I think too, you know, like there were supply chain issues across the board and it's, you know, one of the advantages that small brands had that you and I just discussed was this, this thought that if, you know, your, your mainstream like conventional product is out of stock, that consumer is potentially more likely to try your brand. And so like the supply chains, the supply chain issues um, in a way, you know, as much as they did hinder emerging brands in some senses, they were also helpful in, in product discovery. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's keep, let's keep talking about this, the rest of 2020. So we know that food service was down as a whole and like, that's, that's pretty obvious, right? Like restaurants go away, food service goes away, you know, know, on campus (laughs) dining goes away. Right. You know, there, there we go. Right. Um, We know that e-commerce exploded, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Can we talk about are like when is food service going to come back? I know you don't have a magic, uh, you know, <laughs> a crystal ball here, but like, what's going to happen? Like, what's going to happen to food service? What's going to happen to e-commerce? Like, what does your data tell you? Yeah, well, it is very difficult. I will, I will tell you that our methodology for estimating the size of the food service industry for specialty as well as the e-com is very, very difficult. And mm-hmm. you know, if you look around and start looking at some of the data that is out there, and you read about it, you realize even today, for example, this morning the National Restaurant Association put out a press release on the size of the restaurant industry in 2020, and sh- and basically numbers are down 26 percent over yeah. in 2020 over prior year. But yeah. you read the fine print, and it's really driven driven by a survey of, of that they did with, with, uh, I think like a thousand, uh, food service operators. And mm. so, you know, even collecting this data, sometimes it's not actual movement data. Like you get from spins or IRI or Nielsen, it could be estimates based on surveys, based on yeah. uh, Amazon rankings of products. And so it is very difficult to net, to navigate, but 
One of the things I think that I'm already starting to see as we um, you know, work on the numbers here is that food service, specialty food service, and even all of food service didn't decline as much as you might think. Hmm. Um, it, like I said, the, the NRA is saying it's down 26% for the year. That kind of shocks me. I mean, there are so I many- I thought it would be more. <laughs> yeah, you'd think there'd be yeah. so many more that were out of business completely, or even if they had a, a space outdoors, it took them months to get that set up, and then yeah. they had to reduce the traffic and so on and so forth. So those numbers are kind of surprising. But what obviously what happened was brick and mortar retail and online re- retail for specialty foods got, got all of those sales. Basically all the sales yeah. lost in food service migrated into that channel. And that's yep. unprecedented because we're dealing with a pandemic. It's unique to the industry to see these kinds of like, if, if it's not here, it's moving there. It's not just right. disappearing. Like people are outright. still eating. Yeah, yes. It's, people are still yeah. eating. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I think, the declines we're seeing in food service, we know it's going to rebound. We know yeah. that even in yeah. within within brick and mortar retail, if we're seeing some of the convenience categories like functional drinks and beverages and shelf uh, ready to drink uh, tea and coffee and things mm-hmm. like that, even if they've taken a hit right now because the workers are not in the stores buying them, or if the fruit snacks category is getting hammered right. because parents aren't sending their kids <laughs> off to school with them in their lunchbox. That's going to rebound, but yeah. I think it's fair to say it's going to take most of 2021 for for that rebound to really begin. You know, oh, for and sure. Then, and then when we look at you know our forecasts through 2025, you know it's probably going to be more like 2022 before we're starting on the track of sort of recalibrating to where we were with uh, with food service. Certainly, yeah. um, one thing I can say though with with ecom. The growth rates are outrageous. You know, Target today reported, I think, that their quarterly sales were up 120% or something like that. And uh, e-com is a big part of that for for the specialty industry as well because of Walmart and other players that are bringing in those products. And so the growth that we were seeing year over year pre-COVID with e-com was something like 50% annually in the last couple Mm -hmm. of years. And we really feel that, you know, this year... While you might think it was up 200%, it's probably not that high. It's probably something in the realm of 60 to 80% year-over-year uh, year growth. And the reason is, as you might you know, you know, understand and your, your listeners as well, is that you know, the operational uh, tactical necessities to try to turn specialty retailers into offering robust yeah. e-com programs <laughs> with you know, click and collect and, and delivery, it's not as easy as, it's as so hard. turning it on for everyone who wants it, right? No, it's so hard. I mean, I... I, you know this, I loved my time at Byright. I loved my time consulting with retailers around the country, but I am so grateful that I am not in that position right now because, you know, I, I'll tell you, David, like I had, gosh, I probably got a half a dozen inquiries every week from retailers who needed help getting online Mm -hmm. um, over the past year. Yeah. And it really, it really was those independent independents who were like, we don't know how to do electronic inventory. You're telling me that we need to photograph 10,000 SKUs and Yikes. like get them uploaded somewhere. And yeah. like, I'm like, how do we do this? What do we do? Like, it's just, it's, it's daunting. It's really daunting. And I have to say, like, I'm actually very impressed by how quickly so many of them did get on, get online. 
Yeah, I think that that's sort of the message that I see when you look at sort of the the positives, the upsides that have come out of 2020 and into this year already that it's, you know, it's forced people to be really creative and come up with solutions that are, you know, temporary until the next better solution next month or next quarter yeah. or whatever. And that, you know, that adjustment, that pivot, uh, you know, we say that word to the point of ad nauseum, but it really <laughs> has forced us to be like pretty limber in the industry and say, I got to get creative. I got to get creative right now. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and, yep. And that can, that can mean many things. I've talked to some producers and I'm sure you could relate stories too, where they've said, I'm just going to focus on these three or four retailers this year. I can't do anything more than that. I want to do a good job with those three or four. And it's not about acquiring 20 new ones this year. And that's a lesson that takes some humility, you know? Yeah. I, I applaud that, right? Like, focusing and going really deep in with the accounts that you have. And gosh, like that is, it's a smart strategy. Yeah. Um, with the e-commerce side of things, like <laughs> I, I generally get on a little soapbox about this, David, and talk about the rise of e-commerce really being a result of the rise of online wholesalers. So you talked about like Target, Walmart, um, you know, using Instacart through independence. And like, yes, of course we saw a rise with direct to consumer as well. But like I I think that like the majority of that increase is from online wholesale accounts. What does your data say there? Do you have any data on like the division there? Well when you say online wholesale accounts, give me a little bit more information. But I think I think we don't have it, but Go ahead. Yeah. So, so my, my theory is that with the rise of e-commerce in 2020, we really saw the rapid growth to be um, brick and mortar retailers or online retailers like the Thrive Markets of the world right, right. who who offered that same grocery experience to the consumer. Like right. I go on Thrive Market, I build a $200 shopping cart and I get it shipped to my door. I go on, you know, I don't know, uh, Rainbow Groceries website, like via Instacart, I build my $200 basket, I pick it up cur- curbside at Rainbow. Correct. Correct. And so like that, yeah. that's where the growth was. It wasn't that I was going to the honey producer's website and the egg farmer's website and the nut butter producer's website right. um, individually. And I yes. think the the reason why I like to to really be clear on that with, with my listeners and with my Retail Ready students is because... That means that it's still wholesale. So you still have to have a wholesale, your wholesale margin factored into Mm -hmm. your price. Mm -hmm. And you still have to pitch a real live person, a real wholesale buyer on the other end of that website and convince them to carry your product. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And I'll just say right now, we don't have the data broken out in any way like that. I wish we did, but mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right with your instincts. That is definitely what's happened. And and your suggestions to your students, it's very, very much the truth. I know even from some of my clients that uh, Thrive Market is ordering their product through Kehi, but if there mm-hmm. are if there are fill rate issues or if there are other special situations, they're going to ship directly uh, to Thrive's right. warehouses in the U.S. And they have to have that same mentality. Like it, even if it's pure play online only, they are uh, just another retailer at the end of the day that yeah. is going to have the same demands and same, they're going to require perhaps a broker to even yeah. you know, yep. in, in, initiate yep. the conversation, whatever it may yep. be. Yeah, totally. And it's yeah. not to say that I don't 
<laughs> I don't support <laughs> direct to consumer. I do. I think like the brands that we saw succeed last year were the ones who really had this omni-channel strategy and had mm-hmm. had the ability to play in different arenas, especially as they were, like you said, experimenting and, and figuring out where, you know, where they personally were going to have success. Um, but I think that that it is, it's really easy to think that e-commerce is just putting up a website and yeah. <laughs> and having people come and buy your chocolate directly from your website. And it's, it's a, a bit more complicated than that. It is. It is. And I also think it's probably become pretty difficult for the, for the uh, manufacturers too, who work with the thrives. And I'm not saying thrive specifically, but these e-com retailers or e-tailers that maybe put price pressure on them to have a better price yeah. in a brick and mortar. And then you yeah. have to talk about map pricing to make sure you're not, you know, harming your brick and mortar, uh, uh, you know, your brick and mortar totally. sales, because like we know in the specialty report, we're only talking about internet sales being about 4% of the market. Maybe this year it'll be closer to six or 7%, but it's still six or 7% guys. There's yeah. 93%, 94% that are brick and mortar, you know? Yes. Oh my God. I, this is why, <laughs> this is why I love, I love you, David. I feel like you <laughs> and I really um, are such fans of, of brick and mortar um, and realize that like, that's, it's such a great way to connect with your consumers. Obviously there are difficulties yes. in brick and mortar. I don't want to downplay that, but I, I, I feel like the future of retail um, still involves a physical store. It does. It does. We, I think we know, even through my discussions with my colleague and writing the report, we know that e-com is surging right now. 2020 gave it a huge boost, but let's be realistic. We're not going to see these kinds of growth rates over the next five years straight. They're going to, it's going to mellow out because the programs are going to be put in place and it's going to start to show year over year that they're flattening out. So it's not like it's 5% of sales right now. And in five years, it's going to be 30% of sales right. uh, with e-com. It's not going to get there. And if anything, we don't have time today to talk about this probably, but it really <laughs> frustrates me as a consumer. And I mentioned this in the report. If I go to Whole Foods and I see 80% of the shoppers are actually third-party people that are fulfilling Ugh. orders looking at smartphones. Oh, don't get me and, started on that. And <laughs> I, can't, I can't even get, or if I'm in Walmart and they, there's these massive carts with multiple orders being fulfilled yeah. at once that are blocking the aisles, the whole brick and mortar experience is going downhill a bit right now. And it's such a renaissance. It's such an opportunity opportunity because in the last year, so many more consumers have relied on these big stores to get their orders done. And it was an opportunity to improve the experience. Well, that's not happened. It's been, you know, definitely a very frustrating uh, experience to shop as a brick and mortar lover. That's who I am. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Oh man, I, I I feel you on that. I've got lots of opinions <laughs> on <laughs> on uh, retail operations that, yeah. that we'll have to do a whole other podcast episode on. Yeah, um, I've got a couple of last questions before I let you go. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think? What what big habits do you think are going to stick around as as we're post pandemic? Well, I think it, there's been a lot of articles. I read this great Washington Post article that sort of summed up 2020 and said, uh, you know, some of the the three key words for 2020 were like exhaustion, lost, and chaos. You know, those are the th- <laughs> it was like a word cloud, and those are the yeah. three big words. But you know, they also talked about habits. You know, and they, they may only mm. take you know four weeks to develop a habit. Well, we've had a whole year to develop some of these habits, and mm. some of these habits involve working at home and and maybe moving out of the city to, because you realize you you're enjoying 
spending time at home and you want a little more space, or yep. it's also means maybe you're going to be ordering or going to more brick and mortar retailers too, because wherever you're moving to doesn't have these uh, mm-hmm. robust e-com delivery services and things like that. So I do think there's a lot of things that are shaping up that are suggesting to me that um, consumers are going to continue to value and appreciate cooking and preparing meals. Sure, they're going to need shortcuts when they get busier and busier, but they're going to remember how, even if even if right now they're griping about it, they're going to remember, I think, that it was actually a favorable time um, where they had more time in the kitchen, more time with their families, mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. time with their kids, uh, that those things stick with them and that they're going to want to try to recreate those situations down the road in some form or fashion. Right. Maybe uh, not 365 days out of the year, right? but previously they could be, they could have been the consumer who was cooking at home once a week. And even if you can get them up to three times a week, that's a huge shift. Yes, exactly. So, I I mean, those are some of the the major things that I think that are happening that are going to stick. And I, I just obviously feel really strongly that the specialty food industry, even though it can't possibly retain these kind of growth rates for, for very much longer, because it coming this month basically is when we were up 40% last year. Well, there's no way we're up this year. We're probably going to be you know flat this year. But it's really, to me, brought a lot more people back into the space to look at groceries mm. and even center store. So some of these categories yeah. we've already talked about that were you know less favorable and the whole perishable sets became the, the glory. Uh, parts right. of the retailers and they and they've had to shut down some of those departments yeah. because of yep. COVID, you know? So yeah. I think it's, you know, there's some, there's some benefits it, to me. It would be sort of like, imagine if we didn't have the internet for like a month, like none right. of us, right. and then we go back to the way we were. And then you come out of that and you're like, well, did I really need to be on my phone 40, you know, every couple exactly. of days? Exactly. Exactly. No. Yeah, so. yeah. Oh, that's a good analogy. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So I want to wrap up just by going back to this idea of the the report that you're writing and this idea mm-hmm. of using data, you know, similar to like the the data that we talked about today as an emerging brand. Um, why? I mean, I know what the answer is going to be, but why use data as a young brand, especially when, you know, historically it's pretty expensive to acquire? Yeah. Well, I think it really depends. I mean, I know uh, I mentioned this last time and it's still very applicable today that it really depends if you're a small producer and you know that you're you're getting retail buyers that want to know how big your segment is or how or you have an investor that's asking the same question or a potential investor, it's just logical that you're going to need to do some sort of analysis on your category, how big it is, yep. who are who are relative players to you and how have they grown in the last few years. And so it really depends. I think the short answer is that some of this data is less expensive than you might realize. So mm. if you're if you're looking at Whole Foods data and you have to buy it through Nielsen, a category may only cost $2,000 where you can see every brand, every item, uh, three years of data. You can see if it's organic or not. You can, you can filter it a bunch of different ways. And you could spend one business day as a producer looking at that data and get yep. a good sense of what's going on. And even if it's unformatted, and even if you don't have an analyst like me that's going to slice it and, and chart it <laughs> and present it to you, it's still, you, know, you can still make some sense of it and you're, yeah. you know, you're going to need that. The hard part is that you know the spins data and the IRI data is very expensive, and so if you yeah. wanted to look at um, all natural and specialty retailers, or if you just wanted to look at Sprouts only, 
you know, those, those, those purchases are going to be higher up in the, you know, seven or $8,000 range. And that's not even counting, you know, the analytics time, either your own time or hiring somebody like me. And so you just have to look at it. I know we talked about this right before the call started. You have to look at, okay, if I'm making a business decision, that's going to cost me a quarter of a million dollars, can I afford $5,000 or $10,000 worth of data that's going to either, you know, redirect me or help me spend that money more wisely? Well, it's kind of a no brainer, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if somebody spends $5,000 to either confirm or deny their hypothesis, yeah. I would say that's, that's extremely, you know, that's an extremely wise investment. You don't uh, yeah. want <laughs> you don't want to yeah. launch into a category like you said at the beginning that has no growth potential. Yeah, and I think there's always insights in the data that you'd be so surprised by. I know I was looking at uh some applesauce data recently and um you know people buy the little mini cups for their yeah. kids and then they yep. buy full-size jars for the household, the multi-use jars. Yep. Well, it surprised me, but to have the actual data that says, look, those multi-size, multi-use size jars are about 20% of all the sales. 80% of the sales are coming from those little cups. So huh. if you're a producer that's going to be you know, going into that market or something like that, you might want to study that and yogurt as well. And <laughs> yeah. You you're like, realize, we are making the cups. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're you're going to maybe make the cups or maybe you take the other tact and say, look, the, the multi-use segment is only 20% of the market, but it's underdeveloped and there's not right. enough, there's not a clear winner in that, in that segment yet. So these are the kinds of decisions that you mm. can't just make at a gut level. You can't make it from shopping stores and thinking, oh, I'm an expert because I know all the brands. Well, you know, you have to see the data. You have to really look at it. Yeah. Ah. Oh. That's a great example with the the applesauce, right? Because I could see how a producer could interpret it, you know, either way. And I think, David, yes. we kind of alluded to this, but let's, I'm just going to say it outright. Like, this is what you do for brands, right? You, you look yeah. at this data and you slice it and dice it for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I'm, I'm a very easygoing guy. I'm not the kind of person that would say, look, it's stupid to go into this market based right. on this data. I'm not going to do that. And, and I, I, I wouldn't want anyone to have to be on the other end of receiving that. But, but I do try to support a hypothesis, you know, questions that the producers have to better understand, is it wise to go in this direction? And if not, give me three reasons why. Why not? Yeah. You know? yeah. So I think you really have to have those kinds of t- tough conversations where you really question why you're in a category and why you're different. And it goes beyond, you know, your brand story. And I know you, you do that. You do teach that with your students and it's great. Mm -hmm. There's, there's more to it than just the story. There's so many other nuances to um, developing your product in terms of the packaging, the size, the the marketing, the positioning, the, even the retail channels you're going to, you're going to prefer to go into versus others, you know? Yeah, that that strategy is is the base of business success, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we've shared we've shared a bunch of clients, David, and I I feel like the 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 feedback that I get is that this, you know, while it may feel daunting at the beginning, like that investment allows the brands to pitch with more competence, pitch with more data, like get on shelves and, and make strategic decisions that like you said, it's, is based off information based off data and facts rather than just their, the whims of their, (laughs) their, um, you know, 
their founder feelings, right? Right, right. And and I didn't even I didn't even quickly mention this, but if you are already a producer that's selling through UNFI or through KHE or through Whole Foods, they have portal data that you can access at uh, you know, it's not free, I presume there's a built-in cost, but it's not like you have to spend thousands of dollars. You have that right. access immediately and you can look at weekly or even daily data depending on what you're looking at. And you can hone in on on regions where you're doing well and where you're not doing well. And maybe you yeah. have a broker that's doing Florida right now and you have your questions about whether or not it's any good, you know, they're doing any good work yeah. for you. Well, you can, you can measure it with your own yeah. internal data looking at the Florida stores. And so, you know, that's the other aspect of it. And I think small producers, they might be a little intimidated by all the data that's out there and no, time, sure. to, yeah. no time to actually look at it. And so yeah. that's, that's my, that is my niche. Um, but I'm also here to say, look, it's not as intimidating as you might realize if you can just, you know, designate a little bit of time and a little mm -hmm. bit of research and, um, you know, just dive in a little bit and, you know, it's not as intimidating. <laughs> yeah. as, and as your business seem. will be better for it. Right? Of course, of yeah. course. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I've got two last questions for you. First off, David, are you at the time of this recording in March, are you taking new clients and where can people find you? How can they stay in touch? Yeah. So I, at the very, at this very moment, I'm really pretty booked solid, but yep. I would invite people to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, and they can also find me through my email address. I'll say it, but we can also post it in the podcast. It's D Brown, B R O W N E at, I'm sorry, D Brown dot research <laughs> at gmail.com. And uh, I'd be happy to talk to anybody. I, I actually go out of my way to say, look, let's just talk on the phone and let's just casually discuss what your needs are. There's no cost associated with that. And uh, I can help you, you know, even if we end up not doing professional business together, I can yeah. try to help you a little bit on the superficial level to get, to get, get your needs met. Yeah. Well, that's what I love about you. You're such a, a connector and such a generous person in our industry. So thank you, mm -hmm. David, for being on the show today. I think we need to make this an annual thing. I do too. I think <laughs> I, I would like it even more because to me, I get so much out of it hearing what your insights are with your students and the challenges and tribulations. And you know, I think, yeah. we, I think we both have the same mindset of wanting to support the, the supply chain, the specialty food industry as a whole. And you know, obviously we have a lot of experience as well. So yeah, absolutely. Well, you will be invited back one year from now. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks again, David. This was great having a conversation with you today. It's my pleasure. Okay, my whizzes. So thanks thanks to you guys as well for tuning in to, to today's show. Like I said, I am so grateful for David and his time on the podcast. And I hope that you also found this episode valuable. Let's continue the conversation in our Food Biz Whiz Facebook group. Come and join us. We are discussing the podcast episodes. We talk about trends in our industry, best practices for expanding your wholesale accounts, how to nail your buyer pitches, and a whole lot more inside of that group. So find your invite directly in today's show notes. Okay, I am out. I will see you guys right back here next week. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to Food Biz Whiz, the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe so you never miss a beat. Hungry for more? Check out www.foodbizwiz.com that's food, B-I-Z-W-I-Z dot com for detailed show notes from all episodes. Thanks again for tuning in and stay busy.